Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your, what you would want us to learn from this. And just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Haggai chapter 2. We're going to be starting at verse 7. And we just got done with them looking at, uh, they were supposed to build God's house. And they finally got started on it. And he, he's praised them for this. Now we're going to look at uh, verse 10. In the 24th day of the ninth month of the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt, and a skirt does touch bread, and, and, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai then said Haggai, If one be that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people and this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands that they have offered there is unclean. Now I pray you consider from this day upward from... Before a stone, before, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since these days when one came to the heap of twenty measures, there were but ten, and when one came to the press vat, vat to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with a blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you turn not unto me, saith the Lord. All right. So here he is, he's praised them just recently for at least starting the temple. But he's also going to start chastising them because they haven't repented from their sins. And so he starts out with a question in uh, verse 11, and he says, ask the priests. He goes, if you're holding something holy in your, in your garment, you're using it as a, as a holding, and you touch something that is something else, does that thing become holy? And the priest answered, no, it does not. Uh, so he's making a point that just you handling holy stuff or building a temple does not make whatever you do holy. All right. Uh, so he's making a point here. Just because you're doing something holy does not mean that what you touch now is going to be holy. And uh, the priest understood this. They understood that you had to be holy before God had to be washed, had to, be, had to have, make confession. And then he goes on with the second part of this, and he goes, if you're unclean and you touch something holy, what, what happens to it? And they go, well, it shall be unclean. And he, the, holy thing be the holy thing will be unclean if you're unclean and touch it. And his point that he's making with them as he gets further on in here is, just because you are doing a good thing does not make you holy. And this is something that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ, not us. So if we are trying to earn our righteousness, anything we do is not righteous because it is us doing it. And it has to be done through Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, you're doing all this good stuff. You're building a temple. But your hearts are not right. You have not repented before God. Just doing this good job. And, I, and he praised them. He says, you've, you've started the temple. Good job. But they didn't come at it with the right heart. 
And there is much that we can do before God, and we will say it's for God, but we're trying to get glory for it, or we're trying to make ourselves look good, and we'll go, God, look at what I've done for you. And God says, and? <laughs> you know, uh, so what? <laughs> yeah, he's going to go, just because you're doing things that are righteous does not necessarily mean they're righteous if you are unholy to begin with. And this is where repentance comes in. And all of this stuff that comes into this, and this is what he says in verse 14, so this people and this nation is before me, says God. You are defiled. You cannot make, everything you touch is defiled. Now this is going to be big news for them. They're building the temple of God. They think they're doing a great thing. They're building God's temple. It's going to make them holy. It's going to be a holy place. And, and God is saying, you aren't holy. How can you, and you aren't righteous. You aren't in the right place. How can you touch the stones of this temple and make a righteous building, building when your attitude is not right? When you are not right before me. And we see here that they, there's no indication in any of this previous chapter that they ever offered sacrifices or confessed their sins. They were just, Haggai said, you haven't made God's house, you've done yours, now start building God's house. And they started building God's house without getting their heart prepared. And this is very important. You cannot have revival without repentance in God's house first. And this is what we've said so many times. I want to see revival in our country, but it's going to have to start with churches. Church, the members of the churches have to get right before God and get, and get where they're supposed to be. And not walking in sin and doing sin and uh, enduring sin. You know, and this is something that's very important. How much sin do we let stand before our eyes without even thinking twice about it? And I'm finding this to be true is the more I watch... Uh, have seen the changes on television and everything. And the more God has worked on me, the more I see even the old shows that I used to think were good. I'm going, how much sin did we put before our eyes and allow to, to defile us as his, as his body? You know, well, this is true. It wasn't as bad, but, no, but nonetheless, it started out with these little defilements. We allowed little things in, and the next thing we know, our minds are changed. Our, our minds are not seeing sin as sin. You know, we're, we're able to accept various activities. It used to be that you would not commit fornication, and now we're, now we're, we're not caring so much about fornication. We're dealing with homosexuality and transgenderism, and this fornication is kind of dropping by the wayside because we're, th we're dealing with these really big problems and it all started by allowing fornication in and getting used to it. And if we don't start setting our mind to say, I will allow no evil in front of my eyes, it won't be long before homosexuality is no big deal, transgenderism is no big deal, and we'll be polluted even further. And we'll be thinking, whatever the next, whatever the next bad thing is, at least it's not as bad, <laughs> at least it's not as bad as whatever. And this is what Haggai is saying to the people. You accepted all these little sins, all these altars. You did not put God first. And now you're trying to say, we're building God's house. We're, we're doing what he wants. And we're going to be blessed now because we are going out and doing what he asked us to do. Now there is great value. There's going to be good consequences for doing what God says. 
but it's not going to bring the blessing that would have been brought through repentance. And this is something that is very important, and he's making a graphic, graphic picture to them. You know, if you did these things, would you be holy? Just because you carried something holy, would you be holy? And he's going, nope. And they're going, no, no way. Because if you're not holy, you cannot touch it. And this goes all the way back to uh, the Pentateuch, where he said the priests are to be anointed and they're to sacrifice. So the first thing the priests did when they came into the temple, they would offer a sacrifice for themselves and they would wash themselves in the in the, in the, in the brazen laver before they started service. And then they would put on their clean, righteous garments after they had washed themselves and after they had offered their sacrifice. Then they would be sanctified to be able to do work for God. But they had to do it in the right steps. And this is very important. He's telling the people, okay, you're doing something great for God, but it's not, it's not going to make you righteous. It's not going to make you holy. Matter of fact, because you're not holy, the building itself won't be holy. Uh, and this is a big deal. And he's trying to point out to them, yes, you're doing something good, but you're doing it wrong. Too many times we want to do, serve God our way. God, I, I'll do things, but I want to do it the way I want to. And this is a big deal. People come to church and they want the worship to be something that they enjoy. They want it to be something that they in, that pleases them. And they forget that they're coming to worship God. And now, I understand. It, it's fun to go to a church where you enjoy the worship and, all, and enjoy the pastor's preaching. But if your whole purpose is to go there just so that you get entertained and you get joy, you're coming for the wrong reason. And this is where he's coming at. You're doing this the wrong way, the wrong reason. And he says, you're not getting what you want out of this deal. And God's not getting what he wants out of it. You've got unrighteous people doing things that, that are supposedly righteous for God. And this is something that's very important. How do we come before God? Do we come before him in holiness, with repentance and confession? Or do we just come before him and say, all right, God, I'm at church. Bless me. All right, God, I gave a gift. Bless me. And God's saying, works do not do the end. This is what Jesus kept saying to the scribes and Pharisees. He goes, you, you are nothing but a bunch of whitewashed sepulchers. You're dirty and, and, and vile on the inside. You look good because everybody looks on the outside and they see all this good stuff that you're doing. But God says, you're not approaching me the way I want to be approached. And here's Haggai saying the same thing to the people. And then he goes, consider this from this day and upward and from, and, before, and from before a stone was laid upon the stone in the temple. He goes, so think about this. He goes, you haven't changed. And then he gives a kind of an interesting thing. He goes, and since these days, there one came to a heap for 20 measures and there were only 10. He's talking about how they have not had enough. And this goes back to the very beginning of the chapter. He goes, you have built your houses and you're putting your money in, in, in bags with holes and, and you're not getting out what you want. He goes, you're going to, go to, you're going to go to the to your treasury, to your, your granary, and you want to take out 20 measures of grain and there's only 10, gra 10 measures in there. He goes, you go to the wine press or the oil press and you want to draw out 50 vessels of it and there are only 20. He's saying, you're not being blessed by God because you have not done things God's way. And this is the beauty. When we do things God's way, he blesses. 
If we do things our way, they might be what God asked us to do, but if we're doing it our way or for our reasons, he says, no. If you're giving to God, and we talk about it all the time, God says to give to him, give the tithes and offering to him, and he will bless. But if our whole motive is to give so that we get blessed, God's not obligated to do that because that's not what he said. He said to give to him, and he will bless. And this is important. When I give to God, I'm not giving so that he will bless me, but he does bless me. And he does give me the benefit of it. But I'm not out there saying, okay, God, you know what? I need money, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a bunch of money so, so that you'll make sure that you give me back. This is the prosperity gospel. This is what many of the, the pastors on television, give God and he will give you back. Twice you know, twice as much or 10 times as much. If you give God $20, $20 he'll give you back $200. That's not what God says. And if that's your reason for giving, you're not going to probably get anything back. Because God's saying you're doing it for the wrong reason. Are you worshiping him or doing it to get? And this is something that's very hard for us sometimes. We, we kind of think sometimes, well, God, if I serve you, you've promised blessing, so I'm going to serve you a lot, so I get lots of blessing. And, you know, and it's hard to separate those two. We serve God knowing that we're going to be blessed, but are we serving him to serve him or are we serving him to get blessed? And this is very critical difference there. I serve him so that I serve him. And the blessing is what I get for serving him. And that's exactly it. And why? Yeah. He's very interested in the why. And he's actually the only one that can, can answer the why. You know, we might lie to ourselves even. And God knows what's going on. I can't remember all of the context, but I think it's in Malachi where God says, test me. That's the only place where he says, try me and see if I won't open the heavens to you. That kind of leads someone. It can leave people for doing it for the wrong reasons. It definitely can help have lead it to the wrong reason. Malachi says, you've been, you've been cheating me, and he has the same thing, same thing that, that Haggai says. You haven't been giving me your... your and in Malachi, he even says, you have given me the lame and the, and the, and the broken. Try doing that to your governors. <laughs> See if they would accept, accept the, the seconds. Uh, and so he does, say, he does say, that's the only place where he does say, try me on the, on the tithes. And he's saying, please try. And it is true that if you give God, he will at least meet your needs on it. Yeah, even if you're doing it for the right reason, uh, a lot of times you, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed even if the wrong reason. But the ultimate flowing out of the blessings will be because I'm doing it for the right reason. I want to honor God. And this is very important, and this is what Haggai is saying. You're going there, you're, you haven't been honoring me, you, you've gone and your, your food is getting less and less. You're not bringing in the, the harvest, you're not getting out what you were. And he says, the reason, I smote you with a blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hand, hands, and yet you have not turned to me. God says, I'm making life difficult for you and you're still not turning to me. And this is kind of an interesting thought process. God 
when you're not serving him will make life miserable for you. And in our human nature, we draw away from God because we're getting, getting a hard time. And yet God is saying, you should be drawing closer to me when, in hard times. And this is a true statement. When, when I'm suffering hardship, I tend to draw closer to God because I know that I need him more. But most people, when God pushes them, they retreat away. And I've seen this in the churches at times. When people go through hard times, they stop coming to church. They stop fellowshipping with the body of Christ. They stop reading the Bible. They stop praying. And their attitude basically is, God, you're, you're not being nice to me, so I'm not coming to you. And God, all through the Bible, God's saying, I'm putting this pressure on so you so that you will come to me. And yet, over and over and over again, people push away from God when bad times happen. The whole book of Revelation with the with the uh, 21 plagues that are going to hit the earth and you know, through the signs and the seals and the trumpets are designed to say, God saying, come back to me. And yet most of the people will reject him and, and push away from him and saying, how can God let all this stuff happen to us as they push away from him? But there will be those that draw and say, I need this God. I need God. This is so bad. I need help that I can't can't get. And it is really sad when you look at somebody and they pull away from God in the middle of trials and temptations. And the problem I have is that we need to get to the place where we understand when trials and tribulations hit, we are to draw close to God. And we are coming into a time when more trials and tribulations are going to hit the church and Christians. And if we're not ready with the right attitude to draw toward God during that period of time, there's going to be a great falling away in the church and there will be a great falling away in the church because many are going to reject him. And I've been really impressed because I've been rereading Fox's Book of Martyrs and it's every 50 to 300, 400 years that a, that a, that a trial would come upon the church and persecution would come upon the church. In America, it has been almost 300 years since we've had persecution in America. We are historically due... <laughs> for persecution, and we see it on the horizon. With the laws that are coming our way, we're seeing heavy persecution coming against the church. Probably to the point of jailing and, and death and martyrdom. And it's not a surprise historically. It is coming. We need to be able to look at it like the apostles did. Thank God I've been found worthy to suffer and draw closer to God because of the suffering. But if our minds aren't ready for it, we're going to reject it. We're going to reject the trials and we're going to reject God because we're going to go, how can God let all this bad stuff be happening to us? The prosperity gospel is going to fall by the wayside in the very near future when persecution comes by on the Christians because they're going to go, well, this isn't the God we've been talking about. This isn't the God we've heard about because they forget about all the persecution and all the trials and the drawing closer to God through the trials. And this is why, I don't know why, but God's had me really talk a lot about this because I'm seeing it, I'm seeing the handwriting on the wall that we are looking at persecution in America. Major persecution, and if we're not ready, we're not going to respond correctly. We need to respond by drawing closer to God, closer to the body of Christ, 
that we need each other, we need Christ, we need everything to draw closer to him, not be pushed away from God because of it. And I know there's going to be lots of people that push away from God. And we want to be very careful that we aren't in that group that pushes away from God when the, when the trials come, that we're ready to say, thank you, God. Thank you that I have been found worthy. Give me the grace to go through. And he will give us the grace to go through whatever he asks us to go through. What kind of persecutions are going to happen? I don't know. It's going to start with losses of jobs, losses of reputation, probably prison time, fines, and will eventually end up being probably martyrdom in, in, in prison time. We need to be ready. Are we ready for it? And are we going to be ready for it? And that means drawing close to God, and a lot of it is to be expecting it. Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. What did they do to him? They put him on a cross and killed him. What did they do to all the disciples? They killed them. What did they do to all the various saints all through the time? They've been killing the saints. They've been killing the prophets. When people stand for God, persecution comes. And we in America have been very fortunate for you know, almost 300 years to not suffer persecution because our country was founded on the right place. Would I love to see a revival and no, and no persecution? Yes, I would love to see it. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think the revival is going to happen through persecution, which is exactly what has happened in the past. Persecution on the church has drawn people when they see the faithful Christians with the sincerity and love for God suffering and people going, they've got something we want. They're dying and they're not cursing their cursing their they're captives. They're dying and they're not cursing the, those people that are putting on them. They're taking it bravely and with great compassion and it draws people to God in the long run. And this is what we need to be ready for. It's going to be a big deal. God says, I sent all kinds of pressures on you and your farms and everything and you, you didn't turn to me. And all through this, we see the, the judges is that whole cycle. The nation goes into sin. They fall away from God. God judges them. And at that time of judgment, you have a choice. You repent and turn back to God, or you go deeper into judgment and possibly captivity, as they finally did with Assyria and Babylon. Uh, and God is saying to the church right now, are you going to repent and return to me, or are you going to go into captivity? And many of the churches are teaching doctrines that are going to send people into captivity and away from God. Prosperity gospel, uh, social gospel, everything but Jesus Christ being taught. And those ones are going to reject anything to do with God. The question is, those of us that are teaching the Bible, are we going to be ready to say, I'm going to stand with God? Thank God I have been found worthy. And it's going to be, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for us to put up with that. It's going to be hard to be put into that place. But we've read all kinds of different biographies and everything about people who have gone through this stuff. Uh, Richard Warmbrandt in, in Romania was arrested as a pastor and put through prison. His wife was put through prison. Uh, Corey Tenboom and her family put through prison and all that God did and all that he used them for while they were in prison. God doesn't promise us that everything's going to go well. But he does promise that there's good that will come out of it. People will get saved. Verse 18. Consider now this day 
and upward from the 24th day of the ninth month even to the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid consider it is the seed yet in the barn is there is the seed yet in the barn yea as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not brought forth on, from this day I will bless you so God does say you've done the right thing and you're going do you have any seed do you, do you have things that you are depending on all right this is something that is very important for us. Most Americans kind of go, I'm not depending on God for my retirement. I'm not depending on God for my, my, my meal tomorrow. I'm depending upon my job or the government or whatever. I'm depending upon my Social Security, my 401k. And God's saying, that doesn't mean anything. You go to the barns and they're empty. He goes, but you have now honored me. I will bless you you there is great blessing in honoring God they have built the temple and God says okay you started building this temple I am now going to turn around and bless you because you have been obedient you listened to the prophet who said build my house and you went out and built it now could they have gotten greater blessing if they had gone out and repented and done everything right yes they would have gotten greater blessing but you know God honors things done well it's the laws of sowing and reaping actually when you do good you reap benefit when you do bad you reap the consequences of those bad decisions it's a law that God and this is something that's important God is not up in heaven saying okay you did bad here's your bad here's your bad you did good here's your here's your good reward he has just put the law of sowing and reaping in effect naturally and it is it's described by other religions as karma and kismet and you know you you get what you you get what you deserve and those type of things and in general those are a true statement because God has put in the very nature of what's going on the law of sowing and reaping and just as anything you sow you get more fruit than you sow so when you sow bad you sow one seed of bad, you're going to get multiple returns of bad. You sow good seed, you get multiple good back. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. When you plant, if you're trying to grow corn and you plant that little kernel of corn in the ground, you are not expecting to get one kernel of corn back. You're expecting to get a great big plant and you're expecting four, five, six, seven, eight, a dozen ears on that corn but even if you get one, that's a lot more than you planted. But you're expecting multiple ears of corn on your plant. You plant a little tiny seed of watermelon, and you get, expect to get a vine with multiple watermelons on it. All right? God has sowing and reaping in effect for sin and for good. And so when we do good things, we generally get good back in return. Now, God can step in and say, okay, you, you sowed a lot of bad seeds and he can limit the consequences. Usually he does not. He says, you sowed it, you're going to reap it. He can step in and change it and sometimes does, especially when somebody gets saved and they turn, start turning their life around. He can turn those consequences and say, okay, you've had enough consequence. I'm going to give you the blessing because you've turned your life around. You've come to me. But it is not a guarantee. Turning to God after a long life of bad does not 
you know, smoking for 30 years and, and, and turning around and stopping all of a sudden does not necessarily mean you won't get emphysema or cancer. Overeating and being a glutton does not mean that you're going to avoid diabetes and heart disease and all the things that go on. God can step in. He can block it. But usually he says, you're going to reap what you sowed. And you're going to have to suffer through that. But he also says, just as he told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Even if we have to handle something that's hard in our life, God gives us the grace to endure. And this is very important for us to understand. He does not give us the grace before we need it. I've thought many times, you know, well, God, what will I do if somebody asks me to give up my life for you? And I'd like to think I would automatically just say, here I am, take me. But you know, when you're facing the barrel of a gun or a, or a, or a sword or a, or, a, or a noose, who knows how you're going to respond without the grace of God. But by his grace, I am sure that I will be able to say, here I am, God, take me. <laughs> but it's his grace. He prepares us for what we have to face. And he knows what we're prepared to face and he will not give us anything that we're not able to handle. So that means some people are going to go through some very hard times because of where they are with God. Other people are going to barely be touched with it, but they're going to suffer. And this is something we have to understand. If you're somebody who's not ready for it and God just puts a little finger on you, you think it's just as bad as somebody that God has put a ton of weight on because of where they're at. And we cannot judge the other person saying, wow, how did you fall for something like that? Well, they fell for it because for them it was a temptation. Uh, and by the same token, that the person looking at you is saying, oh man, I sure hope God never does that to me. Well, if you're not ready, he won't. And we need to be careful. We cannot judge our reaction, our life, by other people's life. And this is very important for us. What has God called you to do? Not what has he called, you know, none of us are going to be a Billy Graham reaching millions and millions of people from the front of a, front of a stadium. But he's never asked us to be Billy Graham. He's asked us to reach the people that he has put in our life and to minister the way he has asked us to minister to. And it's very important that we're not looking at saying, well, God, I'm not like so-and-so, so how can I be, you know, they're, they're so blessed and I have nothing. And God's saying, are you using what I have given you? And this is very important. What gifts has God given you and are you using his gifts? Because they're his gifts that he's given you to use. When you use those gifts, he will give you more gifts. And this is the thing about it. Sometimes when we look at a Billy Graham, you know, we think of Billy Graham the way he was at the end of his life. But do you realize there was a time when he used to just go out in tents and have very small crowds because he was just getting started? He was faithful during all that time. If he had quit, he never would have been the, the famous man that we know. He would have just said, well, God, I'm not, I'm not dealing with these 10 or 20 people today because I just didn't get a large enough crowd. But he was faithful back in the days when he was first starting. George Mueller, known for his prayers, known for his faith in God's answering of his prayers, started out with real simple prayers. God, help me pay my rent. <laughs> you know, help me pay my rent for me. <laughs> and God honored it. 
and he learned to be faithful and then learned to be able to make some what we consider super prayers and having God having faith in God delivering him in these great things are we faithful in the small things that God has put in our path or we just kind of go well God this is too simple I don't need I don't want to deal with this I want I want you to use me in great ways and if that's our attitude we will never be used in great ways if we're not going to be faithful in small things God will never allow us to do big things <laughs> so and here he's saying there's no seed in there but God says because you now have been obedient I am going to bless you I'm going to take what little there is and give you a great blessing why because they had stepped out in obedience he says that the, the obedience wasn't made what made him righteous and holy but he says because you stepped out in that obedience I will bless and he does that for us all the time if we step out he blesses. We step out and say, God, I will do whatever it is you've asked me to do, even though I don't think I'm capable of doing it and I don't have the skill. And you step out what God has asked you to do and he blesses in return. And it's an amazing thing. I've seen it over and over in the Christian walk. God calling people and you're going, God, how is that person going to do it? And then you watch them just blossom as God works through them and do things that would never make sense. You know, they build this beautiful ministry and, and it, they know that it's God because they, don't, they know that they're not capable of doing it and God touches it and then gives them more and more gifts and more and more blessings. And this is what's very important. If you want to be greatly blessed by God, live in the small things that he's asking you to do now. Be faithful in the small things that he's asking you to do now. And when you prove that you're faithful, he will give you more to do and because this is important for him verse 20 says and again the word of the Lord came to Haggai in the 24th day of the month saying speak to Zerubbabel governor of Judea saying I will shake the heavens and the earth I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms I will destroy the strengths of the kingdoms of the heathen I will overthrow the chariots of those that ride and those that ride in them and the horses and their riders shall come down everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shahatiel, saith the Lord, and I will make you a signet, for I have chosen you, saith the Lord of hosts. There are many people, basically from this scripture here, that believe that Zerubbabel is a picture of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And from this description, I would say that that would be true. Because it's not literally Zerubbabel who ever had this happen to him. Uh, he never built a kingdom for Israel during that period of time. Uh, he was the governor of that land. He, yes, he was the king. But he says, there's coming a day that I will shake the heavens and the earth. Now, and this is kind of a very interesting thing. In Revelation, it says that God shakes the heavens and earth during the tribulation period. There's the shout of God. When Jesus touches down on... Uh, Mount of Olives, there's a great earthquake that splits the mountain into two pieces and, and creates a new valley. There's all of this shaking that goes on, and God says, I am going to do a great thing. I'm going to shake the nations. And so we see here, I think we're slipping off of just Zerubbabel and showing a picture of Jesus, because Zerubbabel never was that great, great leader. 
He, he establishes the kingdom, the, the, the restored kingdom, but he never takes over kingship. And there's never a ruling king from the time that he takes over all the way until, well, there's still no king. Uh, now, we had King Herod who was put over Judah and Judea by Caesar, but he wasn't a king of Judah. He was not a, the royal line of David. He, was not even of, he wasn't even a Jew, <laughs> but he was put in charge, he, uh, and he bought that ruling. So we see this whole statement, and it's like Zerubbabel was never made that great. And so most people believe that this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And I see it that way. I see it as a coming Messiah. Um, and it says, I will overthrow the, the throne of the kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and, and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down. Every man shall by the sword of his brother. Again, we see the picture of the millennial kingdom. Jesus putting all kingdoms under his authority. Now, we have not seen Israel in this position. Israel has not been in, in, in charge of the whole world since way back in, in Hezekiah's day when they had a large kingdom. And, and you can go back beyond that to Solomon and David when they ruled, ruled over their area. They had their entire land. Israel right now is a very, very small nation. They're gaining respect in the region because they're feeding everybody, they're, they're giving people water, they're, they're producing all kinds of, of uh, medicines and, and, and produ pro produce, but people still hate them. They, they're getting respect in one side, but hatred on another side, and, but they're not in charge. They're not in charge. Nations haven't fallen before them and won't fall before them until the Messiah comes on the Millennial Kingdom. There will be an apparent fall when the, the Antichrist says, I'm Messiah, and brings them peace, but the whole world doesn't fall at their feet. It falls at the Antichrist's feet and worships him, and then when they refuse him, he brings all the force against them, trying to destroy them completely. But it won't be, this, this doesn't get fulfilled until Jesus comes back and stands on Mount Olivet and says, I am your Messiah. I am your king. And he rules from Jerusalem and will sit at the temple and be, re and be recognized for who he is. And, they will, and God will open their eyes and say, this is your Messiah. And this is the one. And, then, and we read in various places where they said, you know, where did you get those wounds? And he goes, I got them from the house of a friend. You know, basically, you guys did it to me. <laughs> you, stuck, you stuck these nails in my arms. You stuck these nails in my, you know, my, in my wrists. You're the one that put these stripes upon me, but I still love you. I'm still going to rule over you. And he says, all of the enemies fall. When Jesus returns on, on Mount Olivet, he speaks a word, and the entire enemies that are fighting against him are, are, are annihilated. And that's going to be... 1,000 years of peace until Satan is released at the end of the millennial kingdom to try to battle one more time with God. And somehow he draws an army out of this perfect 1,000 years of perfection and he talks enough people to draw a huge army to go against God you know, during that period. And again, I see this as what is man's big lie right now if we just had utopia, if everything was just perfect, 
we would make good decisions. And God is going to say, yeah, right, let me show you that you won't. I'll give you a thousand years of utopia, and you still, given the opportunity, will make the bad decision. And we'll see many, many thousands or millions turn against God at the end of the millennial kingdom to fight against God, listening to Satan's lies and fighting against him, even though God has already gotten rid of all the enemy. You know, that last battle, that last battle when he comes down to save Israel is so quick, he just speaks a word. Revelation shows his sword coming out of his mouth, the word of God coming out of his mouth, and everybody just dies. The enemies all die. That's a quick battle. He just speaks and they die. Very much like the, when Hezekiah was, in, was surrounded and, and the enemy, one angel came and killed 185,000 soldiers in one night. All the enemies coming against Israel at that point in time will die with one word. He'll just speak and the entire army will die. That's a quick battle. And we ride behind him for that battle. We're riding behind him in, in, in royal procession. And he comes on a white horse. And if you're familiar with this, when he comes into Jerusalem the first time, he rides on a donkey, which means he came in peace. When he comes back at, at, the, at, the, end of the, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, he's riding a horse. That's the victor. He's coming in victory as a vic conquering hero king. And says, I have conquered my nation and it is now mine. But he comes in and riding on the white horse and saying, I'm victorious and we're bringing peace to you. But Jesus will come and the battle will be over. He will conquer. He will overthrow all the nations and he will rule. Zerubbabel was the last technically governor, but he was the last king because he had the kingly seed. He's the last king of Israel until Jesus reigns. So I think this is what he's saying. Zerubbabel, you, you, are, you are the kingly seed, which means that Jesus would have been of his seed because he's one of the last of the kings. And it says, your son, your descendant, your, your, your flesh and blood is going to come and rule. And that is what Jesus will do. He was king of kings and lord of lords, and he's going to rule. He bought the right. He paid the price so that he can be the ruler and then it says in verse 23, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shehitiel, saith the Lord, and I will make you as a signet, for I have chosen you, saith the Lord of hosts. So again, we, we picture this as Jesus Christ. He's, he's the signet. The, the, the signet was the ring that you would press into the wax to seal something to show that you were, that it is you that was there. Uh, the way they used to seal letters, they would put a wax seal on it, and they would press their signet ring in it so that their pattern and all the little intricacies would be there so that if you broke the seal of the wax, you couldn't just reseal it up because the actual signet part of it would be broken. I don't know how it actually worked because you, I would figure that you could run a knife underneath it, but I guess if you bent it at all, you, because those signets were very, very detailed, so if you, bent, if you bent, bent the wax at all, you took the detail out. You, well, that would you couldn't steam it because you would you would cause you would you would start melting the wax. Uh, in our days, we just steam the the glue off the envelope and we can get into it. But he was the signet. The 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 mighty God will be the signet. The the statement.
The Holy Spirit seals us until the day of redemption. He is the seal. He is the wax seal that the insignia is put in, saying we are the genuine article. And that is really what this sign said, that when I sealed an envelope, I put my signet on it, I was saying that the contents of this item were what I put into it, just as we do with our envelopes. We seal them and we expect that they're going to get there without having been looked at or tampered. Now we know that if somebody tries hard enough, they can. You know, steaming the envelope open, sticking something in and twisting, you know, twi catching the corner of it and twisting it out. We know that it can be dealt with. But pretty much when you get a sealed envelope, you're pretty sure that what's in that is what the sender sent. And it has been protected because it's in a sealed envelope. And so he says, God will be the signet ring. And I, and I look forward to this day that Jesus reigns. We will be taken during the rapture. We will come back in our glorified bodies. We will get to, the, we will get to reign during the, the millennial kingdom with perfect bodies. Not, temp not tempted for sin, not, not, not struggling with sin. We will be perfect and glorified. All right, we're going to close. Next week, we're going to start the book of Jonah. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank, thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, help us to learn to walk by faith. Help us to learn to accept your grace and all that happens. And help us to just be faithful to you and ready to suffer for you if that's what you're calling us to do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin comes short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.